Right, I think you can hear me. Can, there, can someone wave if you can hear me? I think you can hear me clearly. Can you do double thumbs up if you can hear me clearly? Right, very good. Let's hope that that continues. My internet does uh, mess around a little bit. My name's John Arthur, and I'm a member here at Oldham Baptist. For anyone who doesn't know me, I'm not sure there's anyone on the call who, who doesn't. When I was a boy, um, in days before screens, um, well, before the one screen in the one room uh, and nowhere else, um, at Christmas time, we used to get given a little, little puzzles. And one of the puzzles that I remember fondly from my childhood is called the Magic Square. Now, I don't know if any of you are decrepit enough to remember the Magic Square, but it was a, a little piece of plastic. And inside of it, there was numbers 1 to 15, and there was a space. And the numbers 1 to 15 were jumbled up. And what you had to do was move all the numbers around until you got 1 to 15 in the, in the correct order. Now, this puzzle was a deceiving piece of work because it was very easy to get the early numbers in place but as you got closer and closer to 13 14 15 it got harder and harder to be able to, to move them around without disturbing the others um, and I think that um, the passage we've been given this morning to talk about which I'll read for you in a second um, falls into that category it, it is it, it, Jesus has to do some enormously heavy lifting to move everything out of the way so that people can see uh, what, it is these, what it is that he's trying to say. So the passage is from John 14, uh, around about 25 to 27 or there, there around. All of this I have spoken while still with you, but the counsellor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Right. One of the temptations with a, a, a memory verse like that is to leave it as a memory verse, is, to, is to, to make that mistake that Christians have made for centuries, which is to kind of atomize it, to kind of decontextualize it and say, here is a beautiful panacea from Jesus that means that we can just evoke this over our lives and all will be well. However, that's a mistake. It's a mistake to do that because if you do that, you, what you end up with is a, is a false promise. Because when you look at the way that Jesus contextualizes how he uses the concept of peace, which we're going to do to a certain extent this morning, what you discover is that Jesus juxtaposes. Jesus puts peace beside other things. Here is a list of some of the things Jesus puts peace beside. Loss, pain, despair, desertion, persecution and death. And we have a duty of care with passages like this to understand what is it he is getting at uh, when, he, when he does that. So I'm going to deconstruct some of those. There isn't enough time to deconstruct all of them, but I'm going to deconstruct some of those this morning. Um, and I'm going to try, and the initial, the extra large version of the sermon was, was an absolute monster, and it had so much to say, but there was no time to say it all. So I've had to constrain myself, and I'm going to Therefore, just tell one story where I would have perhaps in a long, longer frame told more um, about my own life uh, and, and the function of peace in that life and how, how it works. Um, and when I was, and that, come, that story comes with a warning. So when I said to Helen uh, what I was going to be talking about, uh, she said, well, how are you going to do that without crying like a baby, basically? Uh, and, I, and I said, well, prob I'm probably not, but that's going to be okay. And so, you know, if, if that becomes if you don't like your men with emotion on maybe go and make a cup of tea at this point and I'm not necessarily going to fall down in floods of tears but if it does happen I, I'm not embarrassed so don't you 
be embarrassed. We have to be real with each other. I want to give my life to you. I want you to give your life to me. And the other caveat to add to that is I think that um, I know for a fact that in, in the people assembled here before me, there are stories of greater pain than the one that I'm going to re reflect on. And in the right context, I look forward one day to hearing those stories. I think this is how we, uh, a part of how we as serious Christians share our lives together. Um, so that's what's going to happen. I'm going to, going to kind of deconstruct. Um, I'm going to reflect on the story from my life in a particular way. And then I'm going to round off and then we'll be done. So Jesus takes the concept of peace. And if you, if you take it out of this bit of John and put it into a, a much larger space, um, the peace of Jesus is complex. The peace of Jesus is costly. The peace of Jesus is, ca is caveated. There are, there, are, there are things that happen uh, with it that are important to look at. Um, when um, you look at that passage in John, because it's so common that it comes on a, on a card, you know, or in a memory verse or in, in, in this in a kind of confines of it being isolated, uh, what you need to realise is that it, it's actually a conversation. That when you, when you dial back, when you look at, look at the, uh, the context of it as Jesus uses it, it, it is it's the finishing point to a conversation that he's been having. So I'm going to unpack four bits of the conversation that, that um, I've had already, because it's a conversation about the end. It's a conversation about the end of the Holy War of the Israelites. It's a conversation about the end of the uh, uh, identity politics of wrangling religious people. It's a, it's a conversation about the end times when the gospel is going to come and the accounts with God will be settled. And it's a conversation about the end of Jesus himself. It's a conversation about his death. Um, and that, that all sounds a little bit sort of uh, uh, cheerless, but we, as I said, we've got a duty of honesty to look at look at what this what this is about. So why is it a conversation about about the the end of the um, the kind of holy war of Israel? Well, in in uh, if we go to Luke, that I was going to read this to you, so I'm going to read this. We go to another place where Jesus talks about peace. Then in Luke 19, he says it says this: as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city. He wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known that on this day, what would bring you peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling. Why did he say that and then enter the temple? It's because he's, he's rocking a, a memory, a, a, a part of the genetic DNA of the Israelites. Because when the first magnificent wonder of the world temple, not the kind of poor copy that Jesus is standing in front of, but when the first magnificent temple was built, Solomon built a plinth and he stood on the plinth and he gave this great prayer to God as the inaugurating moment for the, for the arrival of God's temple on, on earth. And all the priests were lined up and all the sacrifices were available and the trumpets and the singers and the, everything was ready. And Solomon said, God, if only you would come, how can we ever imagine that you will come and dwell with us? And what happened was that the, not since the, the desert had the Israelites ever seen the manifestation of God. And yet what happened was a great cloud, a great incalculable shalom of God 
rolled in and it filled the temple in every way and it stopped all of the singers it stopped all of the sacrifices it stopped all of the dancing it stopped all of the praying it stopped everything it froze them in a moment and it said to Israel your God is here and your temple and your God are one and it was a spectacular moment and that was their mandate that's what they were supposed to do that's how they were supposed to represent God in the world of course they got that wrong that temple was destroyed, uh, and we get to this place where, where now we have Jesus. And now we have Jesus, and he stands up in front of Jerusalem, and he says, if only even you, if even you had understood what would bring you peace, but you haven't understood it. And so what's going to happen is this temple is going to be destroyed. Not one brick will be left on another, and everything will be ruined. All that you hope for in your holy war aspirations is going to go. And then Jesus, the incarnate shalom of God, enters the temple. And what does he do? He empties it. He sends out all those illegitimate people who are doing the wrong things. And he enters the temple in an incarnate shalom. God has become temple. God has become living temple. God has become one of us. And then the lame, the weary, the poor, the weak, those in need are allowed to come to him for a moment. They don't come to the temple. They come to him. They come to God. And there are implications for us when we say that, that when Jesus says, this is how peace works. This is the promise of peace. The second thing that Jesus does is that he um, sets up a kind of attack on the identity politics of religious people. Uh, and he says that, that peace has to function there too. To get a good hook on that, you have to look at the um, what we call the transfiguration. Mark 9, Jesus goes, Jesus takes Peter, James and John, the sort of inner three, goes up a mountain, does a daz advert, you know, becomes too bright to be seen. And then what happens? Same thing again. The cloud of God descends. Cloud of God lands on top of them all. And there's, there's Moses and there's Elijah. There's the law. There's the prophets. And there's Jesus and there's God. And it's a very pregnant moment. And the, the disciples are quite terrified as to what's going to happen now. And then, unlike when Solomon saw it, the cloud speaks. And the cloud says one clear thing. This is my son, whom I love. Now listen to him. What's the subtext of that? The subtext of that is listen to him, no longer Moses. Listen to him, no longer Elijah. No longer the law, no longer the prophets, no longer even the, 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 the great cloud of glory of God is going to be the answer. The answer is going to be that God has come amongst us as one of us. Listen to him. And you can imagine the scenario where Peter, James and John and Jesus even are going back down the hill in a fairly kind of upbeat Mood as a result of this experience. It's one of the most magnificent things in Christianity. Um, and what happens is that they immediately crash land into a massive argument where the disciples who've been unable to cast out a demon or heal uh, a, a boy are arguing with the Pharisees who are using that as an excuse to, to question their authority. And even Jesus gets wrangled into this argument. And one of, the, one, of the, one of the players says to him, if you could do something, that would be great. And Jesus is tetchy at this point, because Jesus says to them, if, if, he's annoyed by the if, and he says, oh, unbelieving generation, how long do you think I'm going to put up with this? How long do you think I'm going to stay with you? Because he knows it's actually not that long. Bring the boy to me. The boy gets healed. The situation gets defused. Probably loads of other people get healed as well. It was that kind of gig. And then Jesus kind of walks off and his disciples come with him, but they're sheepish. And they're sheepish because they know there's a problem here. 
And so they say to Jesus, how come we lost our mojo, Jesus? Why, why could we not, you know, cast out this demon? And Jesus has to give them a lecture on the power of prayer. Now, these are the same disciples who were sent out in their threes and their 72s previously and were happily casting out demons. So there is something wrong. There is something wrong with them. And Jesus knows it and he walks them to Capernaum. And as he walks them to Capernaum, it becomes obvious to us and obvious to Jesus what it is that is wrong with them. Because they begin to argue with one another about which of them is the greatest. I suspect that Peter, James and John couldn't quite keep their mouths shut as Jesus had instructed. And they were a little bit, well, I can't say what was going on up in the mountain. But obviously it makes us kind of special, makes you kind of second rate. And so they, they bicker with one another. But who is the greatest? And Jesus brings them into the room and he says, what are you arguing about? And they, and they don't tell him. And he says, look, and then we get the first shall be last, the last shall be first. The small child, the kingdom of heaven, to come in this way. And they kind of confess to him, and they, but they don't confess about their own uh, pettiness. They confess, they say, we saw a man who was casting out demons in your name, but we told him to stop because he's not one of us. And Jesus is indignant with them. And he says, don't tell him to stop. Nobody can cast out demons in my name and in the next moment say anything bad about me. Don't you understand? It's not your kingdom. It's not your identity. It's not your job to be the custodians of your club like the Pharisees, the hypocrites that I don't want you to be like. The people that you're arguing with all day long when you should be getting on in the business of the kingdom. It's not your job to do that. It's your job to be what I want you, what I want you to be. And he has to give them a lecture about the power of sin and how sin works and how, how um, actually they better keep really short accounts with God if they want to understand what it is to be part of his kingdom. It's, it's a scathing set of things he says to them. And then he says, look, you're all going to be salted with fire. They don't understand what he means. He understands what he means. You're all going to be salted with fire. And that saltiness that you get is going to be good unless you lose it again. And hey, you're in danger of losing it with this identity politics that you're getting involved in. The kingdom of heaven, my kingdom, my people don't work like this. Stop arguing. Live at peace with one another. And both of these sort of end caps that Jesus puts on the, 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 the holy war of Jerusalem was going to see itself through and it was going to result in the devastation of Jerusalem because they refused to accept the holy one who had come and the, and the people of God Jesus immediate disciples are, are being told you need to get your identity straight in the first shall be last in the small child in the humility with each other and you need to live at peace with each other you need to stop arguing and so there's a lesson for, for the church when the church thinks about what is our identity. Does it think that our identity is in access to the Holy One? Is that what our identity is? Or is it our stuff, our rules, our theology, our doctrines, our business, our buildings, our, our constitutions, our, our, all, all that sort of hierarchy stuff? Is that what the church is? And the individual Christian needs to take stock as to whether they've got that approach, that, that giving of their life to other people in the way that Jesus wanted them to give, because he calls them to account. He says, peace comes, the promise of peace is like this. And that... You're sad. That's actually quite complex. The third thing that Jesus says that, that his, his promise of peace um, demonstrates an, an end to um, is actually really really big i mean the temple's pretty big and, and the new the new community of christ is pretty big but it's even bigger than that he says it's an end to the age that the gospel of peace is coming 
And because the gospel of peace is coming, accounts with God are going to be settled and people need to get ready. Jesus had this as a constant backbeat to what he was saying to his disciples and what he was saying to those who were listening. And the interesting thing is that Jesus does say to people to, to them in Matthew, Matthew 10, I want you to go out and I want you to go into places. And, and when you find a, find a place to stay, I want you to bless the place and I want you to let your peace rest on it. And it's all going to be lovely. It all sounds like we're all moving, just drifting around Solihull, giving people the gospel of peace. Isn't that nice? But Jesus does also say, and if they don't welcome you, and if they don't listen to you, then shake the dust from your feet. And I'm telling you the truth, it's going to be worse for that house. It's going to be worse for that town than it is for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment. This is the keys to the kingdom I'm giving you, to bless and to curse, to bind and to loose. You decide what happens. What, what kind of responsibility is that? And again, Jesus is juxtaposing peace with a complex, hard idea of judgment. And although we don't like that in, in 21st century Solihull, that is his gospel. Jesus does say, in, in Matthew, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to this earth. I have not come to bring peace. I have come to bring a sword that divides. Jesus says in Luke, I have come to set this place on fire. And how I wish the fire was kindled, but I've got a baptism to undergo. I've got stuff to do. But do you suppose I've come to bring peace? No, comma. I haven't come to bring peace. I've come to bring division. And in both cases, what Jesus does is he quote, he's, he alludes to and quotes Micah 7, 6, where the writer of Micah is saying the world has gone to hell. Everything's a mess. And because of all this wrangling and because of all this religiosity that people have got, brother turns against sister, mother turns against daughter. People are fighting each other and, and all that's going on. And it's just just a big mess because there's nothing to do with God. And but me, the prophet Micah, what I'm going to do is I am going to wait for my salvation to come. When Jesus talks about peace, this is what he invokes. Micah 7, 6, division, sword, fear, despair. He doesn't invoke a lovely, warm feeling. And that's because actually the, the real end point that Jesus wants his disciples to understand, the reason he's offering them peace, is because he is going to be ended. He's going to be ended brutally. And they are not going to understand what that means. He offers them peace under the shadow of the crucifixion. And so this is this peace passage that we've got is actually a passage which is the end of a conversation. And at the end of a conversation, Jesus says to them, I am going to be at my end and therefore so are you. But do not let your hearts be troubled. How can they not let their hearts be troubled? He started that conversation back in his, when he set his face for Jerusalem, when he prepared them, began to prepare them. What does he do? He humiliates himself, takes his clothes off. He washes their feet. They protest. No, I can't have this. And he's like, if you don't let me do this, you're going to know part of me. He humbles himself utterly. He equates himself with them. He calls, calls himself one of them. He draws close to them. And he says to them, this is my way you have to follow my way and then he says thing is you're going to betray me thing is you're going to deny me thing is you're going to desert me thing is they're going to take me and they're going to murder me do not let your hearts be troubled peace i leave with you my peace i give you these are the contexts. It's the end of a conversation. And what Jesus offers his disciples in, in all of this is a sense that peace is not a panacea 
Peace is an antidote to turmoil, but it does not take the turmoil away. That's the first half of the argument, okay? Um, and I'm going to move to a second half of the argument, but I'm going to pause um, and talk about, about Solihull in the 21st century and about my life and what does the promise of peace that I can read about in the gospel and have all these clever thoughts about what does the promise of peace look like? What do I learn from Jesus in that conversation about the end of all things? Um, and how does, it, how does it work? How does it stabilize my life? And this is the emotional bit. So um, apologies in advance if that's what happens. The last two years has not been a good two years for the Arthur household. This is very clear. When Helen was diagnosed with cancer, um, I remember opining at the time it was like somebody had driven a bus through our house. But within about two or three months of, of saying that romantic thing, I realized that, the, that it was naive of me to believe that the damage that diagnosis would do to us would be that insignificant. And so we went on the path of pain and had to live with it. And like maybe 10% of you and like 30% of the authors of the, of the Bible, one of the ways that I spiritualize my life um, is in writing poetry. Now, I know that not everybody likes poetry, and not a large number of people don't like it, but it is what it is. It is, a, it is an important spiritual discipline to me. Poetry is these words and only these words, and there's something divine in that. There's something that makes me feel that once it has been registered with my maker, it is truly registered. So I'm going to read a piece for you, which is kind of Either you'll like it or you won't, but you're not going to stop me unless you switch me off. Um, and it, it's a piece from the, from the middle of uh, what we're still going through, but what we were going through. Not dying. There's no way to live. Were I to drag myself through this day, and in that corner of ruination stand, gasping for a season of solace, as all that surrounds bids for our ill, determined, patient, still. How long, I wonder, till we can replace the demurs of convalescence paper walls whose other's autumn garden dream lies, opaque as ice, and lo, here are we, wintered behind such brutal, borrowed affectations found, reeking with disorder and sinking into sadness, drowned. Where is the absent bird song? Where the jay, where the kitty wake, forced it seems by your hand to some worthier meadow far away, taken from us, seeming at times even so beyond this mortal patch, that our remembrance of their vertiginous wings lets no trace of hope within our souls to even catch. So tell me, when's the breeding season that migrants might take wing and you will speak to me only of the again when we challenge this harrowed government that chaos cannot reign, when medics do not shrug at us and blessed sleep 
will ne'er a stranger be when within this whole present maleficence we shall countenance nary but a memory of plunging day on day defenceless against that fray, save this. If thus brutal tossed are we to be on that aegis of very heaven, then let now recalcitrant heralds rally to our interests. Let their sacred murmurations bend this whole offence. Let every seraph war to shout for our behalf the more in nameless, ageless, fierceless, dauntless embarrassment to let my impotence can they do united all, do naught but roar. Alas, 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 enough! Come, divine spring, and so let earth's returned feathers whisper thus when all will fecund be, and this heartless devastation flown far removed from thee. So promise me that fateful day, when the summer, where the day, life is full. Life is hard. And if you're going to tell me that if we put it on a card, my peace I'll leave with you, all the blessings, peace, blessings, loveliness is what Jesus is about, then you're wrong. You need to understand who this guy is, what this guy did, what it means for us. When you can't find your peace, when the promise won't come, when the cancer or anything else comes to rip it away from you, you know that you have got Psalm 23's author on your side. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because thou art with me, because you are with me, because you walked it first. Christians are not told, run away from the valley of the shadow of death. Christians are told, take a companion. And the companion is Jesus. And the reason when you have no peace, that you're allowed to talk like that to God, is because somebody else has done it before you. This is not a 1 Peter 5, 7 moment when you say, oh, cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Much as that is true, much as that is good, that is, it is not that kind of moment. It is a Hebrews 5, 7 moment. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and with tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard. The promise of Jesus' peace, the complexity of Jesus' peace, is that. It's a muscular idea. That's the conversation that he's having when he says to them, Peace I leave with you. The matter of peace is left with you now that you know what you know. My peace I give you to be with you, to help you. And it would be a wee bit sad and a wee bit cheerless if that was kind of the end of the, the end of the day. And this is a sermon that could be two, three times this length. And I'll just say, say briefly what I'm going to say now, but it, it, it desires further unpacking. The resurrected Jesus... Just checking people are still moving so that I'm not frozen. The, re the resurrected Jesus is the second half of the conversation. But the disciples don't know that when they hear Jesus say all these things. 
So when Jesus turns up and they're in the room, in the room and the door's locked for fear of the Jews and they wonder if the Romans are going to come and get them and they don't know what to do and they, they absolutely do not have peace in their hearts and the do not worry has really not worked and the do not let your hearts be troubled has not worked. And in walks Jesus. And do you know what he says? Every time, do you know what he says? Peace be with you. Exclamation mark, exclamation mark. I've done it. Exclamation mark. I'm here. Exclamation mark. Peace has arrived. Exclamation mark. It's okay. The turmoil has gone and I have returned. And then he does a complex thing with them in terms of getting them to be, to be the purveyors of peace, getting them to be the people who take the promise of peace forward. The first thing he does is he immediately, and if you, I mean, you can imagine the consternation, you can imagine the hugging, the crying, the, 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 the shouting, the thinking when the resurrected Jesus turns up. And the first thing he says to them is, receive the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit. The promise of peace is the promise of the Holy Spirit. I, who promised this to you? God promised it to you in the law and the prophets. I promised it to you when I was with you. Here it is. I have brought it personally. I have gone through death to bring it to you. Here's the Holy Spirit. Receive it. And he gives them a counsellor, a counsellor to remind, a counsellor to convict, a counsellor to give them the power to do what these ordinary people are going to do. The same counsellor that gives us ordinary people the power to be the purveyors of peace in the land, irrespective of what is going on. And the next thing he says is, and, I'm, and this comes with a commission, just as the Father has sent me, just as all that stuff that we did to get to where I'm standing before you now, much as you're struggling to process it, that was all for a reason. And the reason is that you now need to go. You need to go and make disciples. You need to go and take the gospel of peace. You need to go and cause people to love God, to love each other, to make disciples who love God, who love each other, who make disciples who love God, who love each other, who make disciples who love God, who love each other. Three billion and counting. That was the commission. Peace was given to us to pass on. But the real twist in the tale, and was if there was time to tell some more stories, stories like yours, stories like mine, we could we could celebrate this. The real twist in the tale was the thing that Jesus offered was communion. You know, the difficulty for us is that if we just atomize that little passage in John 14, 25 to 17, if you just dial back a few few phrases in John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him. And we will come and make our home with him. If anyone loves me, she will obey me. My father will love her. And we will come and make our home with her. The offer of peace is not a promise. The offer of peace is a person. Every Christian testifies that despite what happens, they have peace. Why do they have that? because they have a relationship with, a, with the living personage of Jesus Christ. Not the Jesus who's confined in the pages of the Bible, but the Jesus who is cavorting in our hearts and making us alive, vital, real bearers of peace into this land unto the end of the age. That is our commission, away with the identity politics of the holy war of the church, who's for us, who's against us, who's a Baptist, who's a whatever, away with that. Away with the identity politics of, of our ecclesiastical hierarchies and a wrangling over who's in charge of who and whatever. It's a level deal, according to Jesus. Away with the crucifixion. We can have a crucifix on the wall, but it's empty because so is the tomb. 
Away with those ideas. That pain is gone. The peace that that, that brought has come. We are the purveyors of that peace. We take it with us everywhere we go. We smell of it. We are the saltiest people on the earth because whatever fire brought us to the place where we know Christ, we are assured that we know him and our identity is in making him known. The matter of peace, says Jesus, I'll leave with you. But my peace, I give to you. I do not give you as the world gives. Peace for Christians is not a promise. It's a person. God bless you. Thank you for listening.